and welcome to the Asian Society of International Law 101, a space where we discuss international law scholarship from Asia, about Asia and international law scholarship in general. Hello and, and welcome. Today we're speaking to uh, Dr. Dina Zuvala to discuss her new book, Capitalism, a Civilization, a History of International Law, published by Cambridge University Press last year. Dina's book has been widely praised as a timely intervention in the history and theory of international law. It combines theory and history in a brilliant way, and in just over 200 pages makes some very important arguments uh, on the dynamics between capitalism, international law, and imperialism. The main argument of the book is that the standard of civilization in international law should be approached as a historically contingent structure which reflects the contradictions inherent in capitalist modernity. As a mode of legal argumentation, it has been used in various ways to legitimize imperialism and further the capitalist mode of uh, production. Dina shows how uh, the standard of civilization emerged in the 19th century and how it persisted throughout the history of international law from the mandate system to the present day with the so-called war on terror. Welcome, Dina, and thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you very much, Ali. This is a very generous introduction. This is actually a very excellent summary of the book. I think you've done a better job than I have <laughs> done. We can stop the recording now. I think we, we've got a bit more to go, right? Yeah, I have, I have a few questions. So <laughs> I want to start with, with a question on, on the origins and the making of the book. Um, I know it's based on your dissertation, but I assume it went through several, several changes uh, before you got to this particular well-honed argument on the standard of civilization and its logics of improvement in biology that tied everything together really well. Um, so what was the initial motivation behind writing the book and how did your ideas evolve towards this particular argument? Thank you, this is a great question. Uh, so yeah, as you said, this uh, build on my PhD, which I finished in late 2016 in Durham. And the, the PhD, for those who might not have read it, obviously you haven't, there's no reason to, um, was in a sense a much more, um, I would say conventionally Marxist um, argument in the sense that um, it, it was treating um, international law and civilization in a much more rules centered way. So it was saying, you know, civilization was a rule and the rule was basically capitalism. Um, and I, I became quite dissatisfied with this argument, especially during um, the oral examination uh, for a number of reasons. First, because I realized, especially during the examination, um, so I was pushed by one of my examiners to, to say how I understand international law, right? And, and to my horror and surprise, my understanding was actually quite um, formalist. I started talking about law as rules, right? With, you know, a, a determinate content. And I, I realized that that was in a sense, the idea of law that animated the PhD and I, that I wasn't very confident like comfortable with that being um, basically a formalist, but a formalist who says, but also capitalism on top of that. So that was one thing I became really dissatisfied with. The second thing I became a bit dissatisfied with, uh, again with the PhD and I tried to change in the book was the way in which I was talking about capitalism 
as if capitalism um, expands and exists in homogenous ways, right? As if capitalism exists from Canada to Australia and from um, Sub-Saharan Africa to, to Mongolia in, in a way that is homogenous and the same. And this is obviously um, both not true, but also it doesn't sit comfortably with Marxist theories of imperialism. So in a sense, these were the two things that I tried to fix moving towards the book. And the good thing is that I, I, I figured out I could fix them together because by treating law and especially civilization as an argumentative pattern, space was open. I opened a space to also talk about contradictions and about unevenness and about, um, well, indeterminacy linguistically, but also um, material contradictions materially. So this was the basic shift um, from um, the dissertation um, to the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, thanks so much. That's, that's really interesting. I always like to know the background behind how, you know, a book came about. Um, I think what, what uh, makes your book very interesting is that uh, you make multiple interventions on, on many fronts and you engage in a variety of debates as you try to position yourself or attempt to position yourself in the literature. So for instance, while you attempt to expand the 12 framework towards a more historical materialist understanding of international law by focusing on capitalism, you also critique the CLS notion of indeterminacy uh, of the law and, and you take on the current state of Marxist legal scholarship. So could you talk a, a bit more uh, about uh, your main interlocutors um, and your unique uh, methodological um, Marxist framework uh, that brings together the textual and, and the historical and materialist ana analysis of international law, uh, while giving us a sense of how it kind of fits into your overall argument? Thank you. Uh, so I think you, you nailed it in the head, right? I think these are my three interlocutors, Tueo, CLS, and, uh, and Marxism probably in reverse uh, order, right? I identify much more with Marxism than with uh, the other two. So um, as you said, I, um, I draw from all three, but at the same time, I was quite dissatisfied with all three. And um, obviously, if you're writing about imperialism and international law, Trail and especially the work of Tony Angier uh, is so foundational, right? And I, at the same time, I am trying to differentiate myself, but I'm also, I cannot but acknowledge the incredible debt uh, we owe to Tony and also to other uh, toilers. But what I became a little bit dissatisfied with, and that would be a, a typical Marxian critique um, to post-colonial uh, theories, right, is that uh, by centering ideas of otherness uh, and othering in international law, there is a certain um, degree of vagueness or that this is so true that law is othering, but it's true in a way that applies perhaps to all legal systems that have ever existed, right? All legal systems draw a line between whoever is in and whoever is out, and they set certain mm -hmm. conditions um, about, you know, how you can get in or how do we deal with the person who's out or with the community who's out. And I felt like there, the historical concreteness of international law as we know it is lost a little bit. The question is not, does international law other 
certain communities. Of course it does. But how specifically does it other them in relationship to other forms of law, right? Um, forms of, um, let's say, international law, intercommunal law that existed before the 19th century or forms of domestic law that still perhaps exist. The question is, what is historically concrete and historically specific about that? And my argument there was that what is historically specific is that inclusion became, becomes predicated on capitalist modernity instead of other things, and exclusion becomes biologized, right? That there is something fundamentally and biologically wrong with you, and that's why um, you, you are um, on the out. And that was, I argue, a very specific development of the last quarter of the 19th century onwards, and we have inherited that order. So that was the first thing. The second um, thing about CLS is I, I, I believe in legal indeterminacy, right? I think it's a good way of describing law. What worried me was that um, CLS moved from a concept of structured indeterminacy to an idea so that you can find in early Duncan Kennedy work, right? Or in Marticus Kinyemi's uh, From Apology to the Utopia, to an idea of unstructured indeterminacy in which basically anything goes in law, right? Any and all arguments go and there is nothing um, that you can like, you can say that it, it's not a valid interpretation, right? And that again felt both quite implausible from a legal perspective, like you can't argue everything in law, right? You can argue a lot of things, you can't argue everything. But also, obviously, it felt politically paralyzing, right? Because if law is anything and everything, how can you ever say anything about both what it does, but even what it is, right? It's the end of the project of critique. Um, and finally, so I set out to return perhaps to ideas of structured indeterminacy that I think have fallen a little bit out of fashion. And the third point would be Marxism. And um, in international law, I would say not unanimously, but Pashukanian inspired critiques have really dominated the field. And I mean, I feel the need to say there are exceptions and your work is also an exception, right? I don't think you're writing so much within the Pashukanian canon, even though you are writing within the Marxist canon. But nevertheless, it remains true that the Pashukanians are, are very influential. And I was not entirely certain about um, legal form as um, a vehicle for critiquing law for a number of reasons, including the fact that the idea of legal form rests on ideas of sub legal subjects being free and equal that I think if we do that, we take at face value the tales liberals tell about the law rather than the reality of the law. In reality, the law does not create free and equal subjects, right? Especially, and I think in international, this is extremely obvious um, that law distributes rights and duties extremely unequally, even without looking at material inequalities, even within the juridical the distribution of rights and duties is actually uneven. And secondly, and I'm agnostic about this. So I think the argument for Pashukanians goes something like this. What makes Marxist, the Marxist critique of capitalism distinctive is um, 
that it is that it critiques capitalism as a system of domination through abstract forms value um and not through moralistic you know um blaming of certain people therefore the marxist critique of everything including law ought to be a critique of abstract forms i'm not sure that the second bit necessarily follows like we could say that I do agree that what makes Marxist critique distinct is the critique um, of abstract forms, but that doesn't mean for me that th there is an automatic need to extend these to any aspect um, of, of capitalism. And I'm not saying I have rejected this argument altogether. I'm saying I'm genuinely not convinced. I'm, I'm still to be convinced. And therefore, my argument does not treat law as a form it treats law as a combination of arguments. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. That's, that's, really, that's really interesting um, uh, to, to get a sense of the methodology behind the book. Um, so so moving to the, the third question, which I think kind of uh, connects to, to the question of, of how capitalism and international law are constitutive of each other. So that's a central part of your book. And um, you, you illustrate how the indeterminacy within the standard of civilization allowed for the reproduction of governing structures that further capitalism. So in your chapter on the mandate in Iraq, you argue that the termination of the mandate was conditioned on reforms that would bring about uh, certain features of the capitalist state um, into the mandatory uh, territory. So, uh, and what emerged in Iraq after uh, the mandate process was an extremely weak state with a certain institutional facade that allowed for its imperial control and exploitation, uh, especially of its oil. So could you expand on um, this part of the argument and explain how the, uh, the mandate system institutionalized the standard of civilization by equating the civilized state with the capitalist state? Um, and then how these interwar institutional experiments, especially in, with regards to the uh, technical language of administration um, would later kind of reemerge uh, during the US uh, occupation of Iraq. Thank you, Ali. Again, before I say anything, I have to acknowledge that um, if I've ever thought an interesting thought about any of that, I owe a lot to your own work, both to your doctoral dissertation and to the pieces that have come out of that, as well as to the work um, of Ushana Tarajan, who also wrote uh, extensively about the continuities between the Iraq war in 2003 and um, earlier forms of administration. So my argument goes like this. Um, so the first thing, as you said, is I look at the mandate system in order to show that the disappearance of the language of civilization has started in a sense before 1945. And the impulse to dress this dyad improvement and biology in a technical, technocratic, and perhaps more politically acceptable language is a very old one, and therefore we shouldn't buy it, right? So what I do in, in this chapter is to look at the debates, uh, closely at the debates that ensued within um, the Permanent Mandates Commission when Britain said that it wants uh, to move towards the independence um, of Iraq, the emancipation of Iraq and its admission um, to the League of Nations. And I wanted to do that first because very often people say, and that's 
absolutely true, right? That this was a cynical move by Britain in order to maintain um, a de facto political, military, and economic control without paying the price of formal imperialism and also without the oversight of the league. And this is absolutely true. But what interests me is how did international law come in and how did um, arguments of international law conceal or not this reality? And there was a very long debate within the Permanent Mandates Commission uh, about the preconditions of emancipation. And what happens there is this familiar dyad emerges. So on the one hand, you know, uh, Britain says, you know, um, Iraq is absolutely ready to become an independent state. Why? Well, because now it has a functional government. It has an army. It has a very repressive police. And that's amazing. Um, it has some very rudimentary um, welfare state, right? It can build roads and build sanitary systems. Uh, at the same time, so the logic of improvement, right, that it has the mechanisms that will ensure the continuity of capitalist accumulation and especially of oil um, drilling um, in Iraq. But at the same time, of course, there's constant arguments both by Britain, but also by the other members um, of, of the uh, Permanent Mandates Commission that say, well, but you know, at the same time, these people are Arabs, right? We cannot possibly expect from them to have the full range of government institutions, and therefore they will not also have the full range of sovereign rights, right? And it's okay, it's legally okay um, that there are treaties that severely um, restrict what we would normally understand as um, sovereign and functions uh, of a state. So this kind of back and forth uh, I found really interesting. And the fact that already since the early 1930s, there was an effort to sanitize um, this back and forth, not talk about civilization, but talk about emancipation, for example. And the other reason I'm really interested is to also show how the preconditions, or, or rather what it means to be a capitalist state has always been an evolving notion, right? I'm not arguing that um, the logic of improvement of the 1870s, of the 1930s and of 2021 are the same. So in a sense, the fact that they had to even um, tokenistically but totally like pay some homage to ideas of welfareism shows the transformations that the state and the capitalist state was undergoing um, between the two world wars, right? The idea that to be a functional capitalist state, you need to intervene and correct the most hideous excesses of capitalist exploitation, both because workers' mobilization forced you to do so, and this is also what your work has brought on the table, but also because your role as a capitalist state is to smoothen a little bit the uh, contradictions and destructive tendencies of capitalism. And to show that this notion of capitalist state is not a static one, I also go and look um, at the occupation and especially you know, the first two years, 2003, 2004, because there the notion of the capitalist state is a no the notion of an extremely neoliberal capital state that in a sense would be quite strange 
uh, to the permanent mandate commission members in the 1920s and 30s, right? The idea that to stop being a failed state or a rogue state, Iraq basically had to privatize so thoroughly that that would be quite a shock even for like if the US tried to privatize so thoroughly it would um it would probably collapse my favorite well quote-unquote favorite story from the occupation with Iraq of Iraq in 2003 2004 was the privatizations um advanced much slower than the coalition provisional authority wanted because the privatizing authority itself was privatized. It was so outsourced um, that there were only two people in the core occupying forces that were overseeing it. Everything else was outsourced. So a thoroughly um, neoliberal vision uh, of statehood was put forward there. So in a sense, the reason I kept with the story of Iraq in two chapters, was that I tried to hold on to this idea of continuity and change, right? That there, there are continuity of patterns that doesn't mean that there's necessarily continuity of content. That content can and may change, and that is extremely important, but the pattern persists. Brilliant, thanks, thanks so much for this. Um, so, uh, a common critique of, of structuralist positions concerns the question of agency. So in your chapter uh, on the Southwest Africa cases, you show how anti-colonial lawyers inventively developed tactical argumentative positions to make their case against apartheid. However, you go on to argue that they were unable to break out of the structural contradictions of the oscillation between the logics uh, of the standard civilization, the logic uh, of biology and the logic of improvement. Um, you emphasize that the, the standard of civilization is so embedded in the contradictions of the capitalist system that uh, anti-colonial lawyers were bound to remain entangled in these contradi contradictions. At times, it seems like you're saying that there's no way out of this structural trap. We are all bound to fail as long as we engage with international law and its modes of uh, argumentation. At one point, you write, and I quote, uh, no matter how self-reflexive, responsible, and historically aware the international lawyer uh, might be, upon entering the realm of civilization in its own terms, they are subject to its uh, contradictions, as well as its ties to racial capitalism. Which leads me to the question of whether and how one can break out of this trap. Is, is there a way out of this, this structure, uh, whether it's within the law or, or without the law? Thank you very much. Um, so um, part of the reason why I wrote this book was I became quite frustrated um, with this increasing um, mythologization of the individual lawyer um, that has been happening the last 20 years in international law, especially under, after the gentle civilizer of nations, right? Um, and perhaps I did, you know, bend the stick too much on the other side, but I think this is needed in international law right now, someone to bend the stick on the other side and stop this slight obsession with biography and individuals. Um, I, I, I think we've had enough of that. <laughs> I do think this doesn't mean that there is no space um, for um, radical lawyering within international law, because in, in, in the um, abstract you read in the 
excerpt you read. I say upon entering the realm of civilization, not upon entering the realm of international law, right? And I do say early in the book that I think this was a pattern, civilization has been a pattern of argument amongst many. I think there's agency in the sense we can choose not to argue within this pattern. I, and, and then you, we, could, we could see the flexibilities and restraints that come with other patterns of argument, but I think we have freedom not to do this, right? There is nobody forcing us to do this. Um, so that, that is a form of agency, like sometimes saying I would rather not to is, is a form of agency and it doesn't re require that you give up on international law as a whole. I do think we need to give up on anything resembling um, this pattern of argument as a whole, in the sense that in my mind, um, the people arguing the Southwest Africa saga were arguing in such a favorable international balance of power, right? And they still, not just lost the case, but they still ended up totally tangled um, within their argument in my part of what I argue in the chapter is that this case as a radical case had been lost much long before it was lost, literally 1967, when the court decided whatever. Um, so that is 1966. So that is one thing, right? I think we can choose not to make arguments uh, within this pattern. And I think it's not that difficult. You know, there's other ways of arguing in international law. The second point, of course, is that um, not everyone is, not everyone is a, I don't know, a Marxist, or not everyone is a radical, right? So in a sense, I can see how and why the proportion between um, improvement and biology matters, right? How, um, ob how much the pendulum swings towards biology can make a very material and very bad, um, can have a very material and very bad influence on people's everyday lives, right? I'm not, I'm not at all uh, questioning that. So like, I can see why people who, who think that like, you can have better forms of capitalism can choose to make argument within this dyad and emphasize much more improvement over um, biology. I think this is a dangerous way of arguing, but at the same time, I don't think it's dangerous for everyone, right? I think it has yielded um, concrete material gains for certain uh, classes of people in the global south. And I think at some point it's also worth acknowledging that um, most of our colleagues would identify much more with these people than perhaps what you or I would consider a good usage uh, of an, a liberatory usage of international law. So I think for those who share um, a sense that there is something fundamentally wrong with a capitalist mode of production, I, I don't think there's any way of using um, civilizational arguments in a way that is not terrible. But I think for others there are. I disagree with them, but I disagree in a sense, not with their engagement with international law. I disagree with their broader vision and project, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So so uh, other modes of uh, um, argumentation could be different, right? Um, uh, they could be more useful. You're just your issues with civilization specifically. Absolutely. In a yeah. sense, I'm, I'm agnostic the book is agnostic about using international law as a whole, as a tool 
for liberation. It's, mm, it doesn't mm. say anything either way, oh, okay. right? I, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm kind yeah. of like, I suspect that there are other arguments that are much, much better, but there is nothing in the book that gives you a practical guide mm -hmm. to how to do it, right? And then like, I think then it would be like, people like Rob Knox's uh, work on strategy and tactics would be a much, much more useful guide. And to translate to Rob's idiom, I don't think there is any tactical deployment of civilization that does not undermine the strategy of, I don't know, human liberation. But I can absolutely think of other ways of arguing that are not, that have much fewer perils. There is nothing that is not dangerous, and that's in this I'm quite Foucauldian, but I can, I can see how with other patterns, this is a um, risk worth taking, not with this one. Right, right. Which, which brings me to the last question, which, which is actually connected to, to the, um, the, the concept of civilization itself, and I think you kind of answered that part. Um, but um, it's, it's worth kind of asking the question anyway, which is, um, I was wondering to what extent you think the concept of civilization itself is uniquely a Western imperial concept, or whether it was the process of its juridification into the standard of civilization, which transformed it into the structure that you analyze in, in your book. So, you know, we already know that the concept is used around the world, and I don't know, think like the Chinese civilization or Islamic civilization, for instance. But when it comes to the so-called Western civilization, for some reason, this has led to the construction of a specific notion of civilization that excludes other civilizations. So the question is, do you think in the end, after all this, do you think that the concept of civilization is in any way redeemable? And I think your answer is probably no. Um, and do you think that there could be a move away from the standard civilization to what has been referred to as the trans-civilizational conception of international law, which I assume is one that breaks away from, from the structure you describe. Yeah, so actually my answer is not no, right? Because part of the story <laughs> right. is I don't care so much about the word civilization, which is a weird thing to say after I put it uh, on the title of the book. I care about the structure of argument. I can think of many usages of the word civilization that do not encapsulate this diet, right? If someone says climate change presents a danger to human civilization, that's true. And also, I don't think this is... Uh, neither necessarily racist nor necessarily uh, pro-capitalist, right? So I can absolutely see, and I'm not, uh, that's what I'm trying to say, right? Forget a little bit about the word and its derivatives. Start thinking about um, the sort of argument it encapsulates and the sort of techniques it authorizes, right? And I can think, as you say, if somebody says trans-civilizational approaches to international law or you know, danger to human civilization. I'm perfectly, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that. The trans-civilizational approach to international law, in my view, has begs, like, raises a different question, which is: Is this? Could this be co-opted as a way of having a superficial form of cultural pluralism, while maintaining? basically the same concepts, the same types of argument, the same institutions, but with a certain veneer um, of cultural pluralism or even of better representational politics 
within these structures. And by the way, again, I think both these things are necessary, both cultural pluralism and better, like international law is terrible in terms of both, right? As a profession, both in terms of cultural pluralism and in terms of representational politics. But again, I wouldn't necessarily think that this is um, a truly transformational uh, project. That doesn't mean again, that I think all invocations of trans-civilizational approaches to international law do that. I'm saying I see these, um, I see this as a peril, uh, especially given um, that um, this international law has been extremely successful in destroying and replacing uh, genuinely different systems um, of um, intercommunal, let's say, regulations of relationships, right? It, this success hasn't been complete. So you can still find um, intercommunal legal systems that exist and thrive today. I'm thinking, for example, um, of indigenous internationalisms, right? That did survive to a certain extent the onslaught uh, of certain of uh, settler colonialism. But I think it would, if it's a truly trans-civilizational approach to international law, we would have to give up on many uh, concepts and arguments and institutions we hold very dear, right? So um, the in standard international legal understanding of sovereignty, even when yielded by post-colonial states is a fundamentally Eurocentric concept. You could say, and Michael Fakhry has said, for example, that you know, invocations of sovereignty by social movements like food sovereignty or invocations by sovereignty uh, of sovereignty by indigenous people give sovereignty a very different meaning. But I think that would be the only way of making it a truly trans-civilizational rather than keeping with the same context, uh, concepts and modes of arguing and institution and just adding a little bit of folklore, which I think there is an, a, because I think the 12 critique has been so difficult to dismiss, but it, I, I can see a certain effort to domesticate the last few years to make it an, an issue of cultural pluralism and representation rather than structural critique of international law. Brilliant. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to, to talk to us uh, about your book. And, and we look forward to, to more conversations uh, and, and, of course, to, to the paperback edition, which uh, will bring more people to the conversation, I'm sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and for your generosity. And I'm looking forward to your book coming out. Thank you for joining us at the Asian Society of International Law 101 and watch the space for future conversations.